Thank you. And uh, again, thank you to the organizers, Dave and Axel, for the invitation to speak. And what I'll do is, uh, is try to give you kind of a brief overview of where we are now, uh, the direction we're heading, and actually try to focus on a few of the topics that uh, we've touched on a little bit before, but thinking about what are the things that we can do now based on some of the testing that we're getting uh, back, what are the most common questions there. So I'll touch on these uh, these few areas. We'll briefly discuss BRF V600E, although we discussed that earlier. We'll discuss the non-V600Es, talk about the, the new NCCN guideline changes on HER2 amplifications for colorectal, some mutations, uh, remind uh, the group about fusions, talk about this new uh, uh, therapies targeting KRAS, and then uh, the end with an overview there. So this is kind of a single summary of, a, of some data, and you saw some uh, earlier with uh, that Kathy had uh, presented uh, on uh, BRAF with a number of these studies as well. But this is kind of a, an overview of the three different regimens that are now on the NCCN guidelines uh, that are available to us. Uh, the kind of VIC regimen or Vemarina tecansetux beacon or the, the GSK triplet dibrafenib, trametinib, penetumumab. And they have kind of varying degrees of evidence. They all show response rates in a number of studies. Uh, both VIC and Beacon have randomized data demonstrating improved progression-free survival. And then Beacon, uh, as was discussed, has now has the uh, overall survival uh, data. Uh, so we use this when we're thinking about what regimen is best for a patient. As we had alluded to in the discussion period after the, the morning debate, we all know that, uh, that it becomes very clear that BRAF EGFR resistance is uh, really reactivates uh, the MAP kinase pathway. And so when you kind of uh, survey all the different alterations that we see in patients after progression, whether it's acquired RAS mutations, MEK mutations, uh, the EGFR or RAS amplification events, or even these odd alterations that actually turn out to actually activate the MAP kinase pathway as well. It's a convergent story. They all kind of come back to that same pathway. And we can show in these that even when they acquire these alterations, now this, these are mouse models where you can go in and you can treat the mice with really high doses of MEK inhibitors, uh, and, uh, and you can actually now get these tumors to regress again. So these are not doses of MEK inhibitors that we can achieve in patients, but just showing that uh, that these uh, tumors are really uh, sensitive to it. So there's questions about what to do uh, in these settings and what can you do to really delay or inhibit this MAP kinase reactivation. And one of the things is to look one step further down on the, on the cascade, right? You think about the classic signaling of BRAF signaling down to MEK, which signals down to ERK. And so there's now ERK inhibitors that are entering the clinic. And, uh, and what we can show here is that a BRAF ERK EGFR may actually intercept some of these mechanisms of reactivation. And so the question, of course, is tolerability and whether this can be uh, translated into, uh, into the clinic. But you'll see a number of studies in this area ongoing. What about the non-V600E mutation? So as a reminder, V600Es, the one that's clearly activating the oncogene, and then the non-V600E, sometimes called the atypical alterations, about 22% of the alterations, and this is uh, work uh, that uh, Axel alluded to earlier uh, that was a collaboration led by his team. 
Uh, and you can see a number of about 2% of all colorectal cancers that have these atypical alterations. Uh, and this is uh, data from his publication and, uh, and JCO showing that these patients actually have, uh, have uh, better outcomes and certainly nothing like the BRAF V600E mutated, as you can see in the, the far left one there. Now, it turns out that one of the questions that comes up is, are these tumors refractory to an EGFR inhibitor, right? Uh, you know, uh, we uh, know that these are, some of these are inactivating alterations. These are not patients that one should be treating necessarily with a beacon regimen, for example. The question is, should we even be giving EGFR inhibitors alone? Um, and so there's an article that's uh, just coming out. Benny Johnson from our institution went back and surveyed a large number, over 1,000 patients, looking for cetuximab refractory tumors. And what we know is that uh, if, a, uh, if there is an alteration that can result in resistance to EGFR and it appears after an EGFR progression, then that's a good sign that that's a, an alteration that is actually driving EGFR resistance. And it turns out what was seen was that we, we can actually detect these class two BRAFs. Uh, so there are some of these atypical BRAF alterations that may be associated with resistance to EGFR inhibitors. So it's a complex story, but I think as Axel alluded to earlier, we really think about these different classes of this uh, class one or the V600, but the twos and the threes, and they have slightly different biology, and we can kind of put these together in some way. Uh, I think the, the key point here is to think about that uh, right now, it's hard to exclude these patients from EGFR inhibitor, but where is the field heading? I think it's saying that the class twos are unlikely to derive benefit from EGFR inhibitors. They have, uh, these are ones that have higher and intermediate kinase activity um, from, this, uh, from the increased dimerization. The class threes are really still very dependent on this upstream signaling, so that's, uh, this is almost an amplifier effect. And so these are, uh, uh, sorry, these are ones that still may benefit uh, from an EGFR uh, inhibitor. So stay tuned to this area. There's a lot of interest to think about how we target class twos and class threes. Um, and of course, it's always hard to go back from your report that you get in the patient in the clinic and, and try to make sense of all this. But there's uh, now tables available in the literature to help put different inhibitors or different mutations in classes. What about HER2 amplification? So this is one that's been on our radar for a while uh, for colorectal cancer, about 4%. Uh, in many cases, we see a, a, a strong trend towards mutual exclusivity with RAS and BRAF mutations. And so uh, it's suggesting that this is an oncogene that, that, uh, that the tumor is very dependent on. Uh, there's some uh, data that's accumulating about the role of HER2 and lack of benefit from EGFR inhibition, as one may expect biologically. This is work from uh, Conwell Rogoff at our institution, just showing that when you have a HER2 alteration, your outcomes with an EGFR-based uh, first-line regimen is, uh, is relatively poor. Uh, I'm sorry, this is second-line regimens, and then the non-EGFR-based uh, regimens actually have, uh, uh, there's no difference in the outcomes there. But, you know, we really need to validate these in, uh, in additional uh, studies. But what we do know, and now what the NCCN guidelines say, is that we can treat these patients with a combination of, uh, of targeted therapies. This is the original Heracles study, terastuzumab and lapatinib, in these HER2, uh, 2+, 3+, uh, 
the patients. So these were uh, two plus, three plus with amplification. So almost all three pluses are amplified. Two pluses, it's going to be a mix of those that are amplified and non-amplified. My pathway, uh, the, uh, this is predominantly US trastuzumab, pertuzumab, and HER2 amplified. You can see nice waterfall plot there. Uh, again, a few KRAS mutated uh, patients in the cohort, but they tended not to respond to the therapy. And so the outcomes uh, you can see there of uh, response rate 38% uh, data. Uh, this is the rationale for our ongoing SWOG 1613 study, so really encourage uh, you to uh, think about this study. Uh, maximum of two prior lines of therapy, could not have received any prior EGFR. Uh, there's some central testing to confirm a HER2, so if you identify it on your NGS, this can allow confirmation of it. Patients are randomized to trastuzumab, pertuzumab, or a standard of care arm, with the idea that in the standard of care arm, they can cross over at the time of progression to receive trastuzumab and pertuzumab as well. Uh, so please uh, think about that. Now, the other question that comes up is, well, what about HER2 mutations, right? We get these on our reports from the NGS, and we know that HER2 amplifications are very targetable, so what about the mutations? So uh, this is uh, some data just uh, showing that the prevalence here uh, of mutation uh, is in the range of kind of uh, 3% or so of uh, overall. There's a little bit of overlap between mutation and amplification, as you can see here. Now, the difficulty, remember I talked about HER2 amplifications really being independent of KRAS, right, which is a sign that, that uh, the tumor is picking a mechanism to activate the pathway. These HER2 mutations, however, are not. Uh, they actually, you can see a lot of KRAS mutations in them as well. Uh, and the other thing that we see is that the MSI is uh, that the, the HER2 mutations are really heavily enriched in the MSI high patients, right? Suggesting that these are probably passenger mutations in many situations. And the fact that there's other oncogenes uh, that are mutated like KRAS, again, suggesting that's less, uh, less dependent on those mutations. So that uh, really fits with the data is with neratinib, um, and you can see the, uh, the waterfall plots for a number of different tumors on breast. You can see act, you know, nice activity with neratinib and HER2 mutated uh, breast cancer. And colorectal, though, you'll see the waterfall plot and all the tumors are progressing there, right? So this idea that, uh, that the mutations, HER2 mutations we see in colorectal, at least by this, don't look like the majority of them are really de dependent on that uh, mutation, or at least by a single agent not responsive. Now, there's still hope. This is a, a cancer discovery paper. Uh, that kind of showed that, uh, indeed, if you now do doublets, perhaps you can try to salvage some of these mutations and in these settings. Some of them may be drivers. Uh, but if you have a concurrent KRAS mutation, as shown in the bottom, you know, really no sense of activity there. So I think that the feedback I would give on HER2 mutations is that it's, it's a really mixed bag. It's not clear that there's clinical activity. It's tough because you see it on the report. It seems like it should be activating, but for colorectal, I think the answer is at the moment it's not. Now, uh, the other, and you heard uh, Dave uh, speak a little bit about this already in the setting of, uh, of uh, gastric cancer, thinking about the targeting HER2. And this is something that's very different. Uh, so this is actually an antibody drug conjugate. 
uh, using the trastuzumab, so HER2 binding, but actually brings in a very potent topoisomerase uh, uh, inhibitor. Uh, and, uh, and you can see this is a study that uh, now been reported out, and there's additional efforts ongoing. For here, it doesn't have to be amplified, it just has to be expressed. And it doesn't have to be driving the tumor biology. It doesn't have to be playing a role as an oncogene. It just has to be there in order to, to allow the delivery of the, uh, of the payload. And uh, what you can see is here's a waterfall plot uh, for, uh, you know, this is colorectal and lung and a few others, but just showing that there indeed is nice activity uh, with this agent. And I think I would share uh, the comments that were made earlier that we'd have a lot of uh, enthusiasm about this and the potential here. The nice thing is this can also target those that have HER2 overexpression and KRAS mutation, right? There's no reason that that should be uh, a dependent factor uh, in any of this. Okay, what about fusions? Uh, rare in colorectal, but actionable. Here's the relative prevalence of about, over about 4,000 uh, patients. This has now uh, been uh, published in uh, JCO Precision Oncology the last few months. Um, it looks like uh, that there's a lot of a plethora of different opportunities here, uh, although these, as I'll show you, are rare. This is just an example, ALK fusion. Uh, in colorectal cancer, you can see some activity with entrectinib, and reminding us that, uh, that uh, NTRAC inhibitor is approved uh, in a tissue agnostic manner, including colorectal cancer. Really nice durability, so just showing the, the PFS curves there on the right. Um, and you can see nice responses as well. I've highlighted the three colorectal cancers that were part of that experience, right? So all th we're three for three uh, responses. That's not a, uh, encouraging, but certainly not a huge denominator there. And of course, the reality is that these are incredibly rare, right? And if we take those bubble plots and show you the prevalence, uh, uh, absolute prevalence of fusions, you can see that these fusions are really present in less than 1% in totality in colorectal cancer. Now, the other, the other difficulty here is that it's that these fusions are occurring in patients that, uh, that uh, already have a, a good therapeutic option, and this is MSI. So fusions are strongly co-occurring with MSI high tumors. So if you now look at this as some data presented uh, a few years back, looking at 17 RET fusions, um, you can see that, uh, you know, that the... Um, while MSI is obviously present in 2 to 3% of our population, when we look at the RET fusion population, it's present in 60% of those that have a RET fusion, right? So what does that mean? It means if you have an MSS patient that you're looking for some therapy, um, that the rates are even going to be lower of these uh, alterations. So this is a nice kind of summary, just saying that, you know, although I talked about NTREC and ALK, uh, there's, uh, this is from a... Uh, uh, Dr. Lon Pui, who presented this at World GI a few months ago. These are the fusions and the data behind them for targeting. Uh, for colorectal, you can see a number of these fusions, very rare, uh, but alterations that are uh, potentially uh, addressable. So what about some of the other areas? And Axel mentioned this a, uh, a little bit before about the how we're going from uh, you know, not just a particular gene, but now actually down to the, the alteration itself. Uh, and this is a very intriguing uh, piece of, uh, of chemistry that uh, what we see is the G12C uh, inhibitors actually can be targeted. 
So um, it, those of you that remember the frustrations of targeting KRAS directly is because GTP binds so tightly into, the, into KRAS. And it's very hard to design a drug that can get in there and outcompete the GTP, right? All of our other kinases, kinase inhibitors do that, right? We can, we can be smarter than Mother Nature and get in there and outcompete the ligand. But in the setting here of, um, of KRAS, uh, that has just been so tight it hasn't been possible. So instead of a traditional uh, structure, what was noticed is that if the mutation happens to mutate to a cysteine, cysteine is very reactive. You know, chemists love cysteines because you can bind stuff to it, right? And it turns out that you can actually design a drug that can get in there and covalently, right, not just, uh, but covalently modify that cysteine residue. And now you've got a blocking of this, uh, this area. And that, that covalent bond will stay there for the life of the KRAS uh, uh, protein, right? So it actually, it's not a drug that uh, would have, uh, be dependent on the concentration once that covalent binding is done. So it results in the G12C locked in an inactive uh, conformation as, as a result of that, and, uh, and I think enthusiasm. Where do we see it? Colorectal and lung. For reasons that are not completely clear, uh, uh, pancreatic cancer has near zero, even though they've got a ton of KRAS. G12C is rarely seen in, in pancreatic cancer, um, and uh, colorectal and lung are the two areas. You can see uh, more than half of all the G12Cs are in lung, about a quarter of them are in colorectal and a smattering elsewhere. So here's some of the early data. This is uh, just from escalation data. Some lung data was presented just last week that actually looked very promising uh, with the, the, one of the first inhibitors, and there's actually several of them uh, that are moving into the clinic. Uh, so this is still an escalation, but just the ability to be able to inhibit KRAS drives this enthusiasm. So even though our waterfall plot's encouraging for a dose escalation, but we're not uh, we're not seeing a dramatic uh, regression in these early doses. We'll have more of the, the 960 dose uh, data coming. And, uh, and still early to understand how long this disease will stabilize. But just the ability to do it, and to do it in a way that is so well tolerated because it's specific to that mutation. And so the hope is not only that we can target G12C, but perhaps we can bring in combinations if we need to that may be much better tolerated than, uh, than, and, than prior ones. So uh, I'll end with one additional uh, uh, opportunity here to target KRAS. We're looking at uh, as you inhibit KRAS, one of the things that happens with a MEK inhibitor is that the cyclin D system, that uh, the proliferating uh, uh, component of the signaling pathway gets transiently shut off, right? But remember that the tumor cells adapt, that they rewire, and one of the things we see is an adaptive feedback is they actually get reactivation of the of cyclin D and CDK4-6, and you get proliferation that restarts despite that mech. And so the idea has been to try to inhibit some of those adaptive mechanisms, kind of learning from adaptive uh, uh, biology uh, in colorectal. And just to note this, you know, is some situations where you can see really nice synergy in the mouse models, right? You see no activity with either agent alone. You put them together and you can see regressions uh, in these models. And so this is a study that's opening up through the accrue uh, network uh, 
uh, Michael Lee's leading this effort, randomized phase two study of TAS-102 versus abinimetinib and palbocyclib, so MEK-CDK-4-6 uh, study, so keep an eye out uh, for that. Now, aside from that last uh, KRAS, what we recognize is we're still chipping away at colorectal cancer in these uh, small pieces, and uh, you know we still have a lot of work uh, to do here. What else is going on? This was obviously uh, can't hit all the areas of interest. Uh, over we just uh, there's a nice uh, review that uh, one of my graduate students put together on over 400 clinical trials in metastatic colorectal cancer, and this is the distribution of the studies that are going on. Right, about 45% are immunotherapy, 35% are targeted therapies, and then kind of a smattering of others. Within immunotherapy, you can see both some of the immunomodulatory uh, virus vaccine efforts, as Howard had mentioned, and, uh, and monoclonal antibody-based uh, modalities as well. But this is the long list, right? I mean, these are the targeted therapies being explored right now in active colorectal cancer studies, a long list. And then, you know, here's our immunomodulatory agents as well, right? It's way too sm uh, small to read, but you get a sense of just the fact that there's a lot of work going on because there's still so much that we don't know. Now, the frustration, uh, I think, for us as practicing physicians and uh, for patients is, you know, how do you navigate all of those, right? Where should I go? And so uh, I think the last thing I'd mention is just a plug to say, you know, patients need our help, that, that navigating these clinical trials are tough. Um, and certainly, uh, I wanted to make a plug for our patient advocacy that uh, groups that have really put a lot of thought and energy into this, including uh, Colentown, and we've got some uh, representatives uh, here today, but Colorectal Cancer Alliance, uh, the Clinical Trial Finder, and the Fight CRC Trial Finders as well. So just know that there's help out there, and I would encourage uh, you to, to refer patients to some of these advocacy uh, efforts uh, and these groups for their support, as well as uh, helping to navigate this system. So I'll conclude and just say, you know, we have areas with activity. We've seen guideline changes, HER2 added, BRAF added uh, since the last great debates uh, meeting. Uh, and I think there's uh, many intriguing opportunities to improve things, but a lot out there to help uh, to weed through as well. Thank you.